This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Welcome to the Casting Across Fly Fishing Podcast. I'm Matthew of castingacross.com, where I explore the quarry and culture of fly fishing. And on this 123rd episode of the podcast, I'm exploring kind of a dark, rarely spoken of corner of the culture of fly fishing. And if you've read the title of the episode, you know that it involves the death of fish. And this is something that we don't talk about a lot. And I think it's because there has been some dogma that's kind of crept in over the last two generations. And like every kind of pendulum, it is a swinging effect, right? Where things are too much on one side, the overharvest of fish, and now they've swung back to the other side, which is, again, that kind of really uh, extreme position of a fish shall never be killed. And if you do so, your fly fishing credentials may very well get taken away. And so that's what I want to talk about a little bit today. So let me start first and foremost by saying, and I'll even give some numbers here in a second, I catch and keep and advocate catching and keeping fish a fraction of a percentage of the time that I'm out on the water, but I'm not against it, and I'm certainly not against people who do it themselves. So we'll talk a little bit about how, why, and maybe just, again, the the whole purpose of this is not for you to do what I do. The purpose of this is for you to think about something yourself, whether it's something you've already thought about, maybe just getting a different perspective, or something that you haven't thought about. And one of the most dangerous things about anything, whether it be fly fishing or politics or religion or science or whatever it might be, is to simply just think what you've always thought and not return and ask the most important foundational questions about what you think. And if that sounds extreme about catching fish, well, you obviously haven't been around people who have just shamed people for keeping a trout or or a crappie when they have every right to keep that fish and where it might actually be the best thing for the water body where they're keeping that fish. And 
I think that's one of those dark and scary parts of fly fishing where we have to tow the company line, otherwise uh, you are cast into outer darkness. But we have to realize that most fly fishers are different. And it's the, it is the long rod. It is the thick line that makes us different. And, of course, it's that flourished casting stroke that such gear requires. Beyond that, it's the trappings and the stereotypes. And even within the culture, all of the counterculture trappings and stereotypes within fly fishing. And day to day, we blend in with most normal people. But on the water, that's where we are very different, where we are the outliers, And it doesn't just have to do with the gear that we use and kind of all the other weird things that come with fly fishing culture. The reason why we're different is because we tend not to eat the fish that we catch. As I've already said, there are plenty of good reasons for catch and release. And there are those people who are fly fishers who do harvest trout and other species. Generally, though, what do we do? We throw them all back. And we can probably wax very eloquently about that aspect of the pursuit. There are virtues, there are joys that come with the challenge of catching that quarry and then its safe return so that we can fight it another day. And we should be able to articulate the best practices of how we do that and why we do that and and what particular methods we do that for the sake of conservation so that that fish can be available for us next season and for our children in in 20 years. Now, some ecosystems can only support us as anglers because of the very conservative regulations that they have. And we need to be able to have that conversation and know why we're doing that. But remember, most people in the world think that fishing results in harvesting. Harvesting? Okay, let's be real. What what does harvesting mean? Harvesting means killing and eating. Killing and eating. We don't say killing much in fly fishing. And I'm of the mind that fly fishers need to realize that that's the way that things are. And we need to accept it. And on the whole, we're, we're different and we're in the minority. Most conventional gear anglers are wanting to catch and keep a couple of fish, freshwater, saltwater, bass, trout, you name it. They're in in it for that in some percentage that is significantly higher than most fly fishers. So the limit chaser, the guy who goes out to catch six fish when he's allowed to legally catch six fish, has become the boogeyman in a lot of our circles. And he is the one that we get upset with, not necessarily the state or the local regulations that allow him to do that. However, and this is super important, there's a vast difference between the Spring Creek trout poacher and the person who takes home a bucket of Mississippi catfish. Two totally different situations. And to, so to, in any way, kind of uh, conflate the two is really a, a, a bad exercise in logic. And I would even go as far as to say that a boatload of silver carp, each laying dead with a bleeding arrow wound, warrants a whole lot less concern than a poorly played steelhead in the Pacific Northwest. And I would even argue that a giant pile of dead carp should be applauded in certain situations, even if they're just used for fertilizer. Why? Because they're wreaking havoc on the native fish, and they're, they're causing enormous amounts of destruction to the ecosystem. So that means that we have to have nuance. We have to have conversations, and that's where the hashtag uh, raising awareness types ought to kind of take a step back. 
if they're going to be wagging fingers, they need to be wagging fingers at fellow anglers who are throwing brook trout back in high mountain streams in the Rocky Mountains where they could be damaging cutthroat populations or something like that. Instead of quickly chastising children who want to bring home pallid rainbow trout stockers from the local pond. And ironically, what's that child doing? It's picking out an easy target. That's exactly what people who get up in arms about people catching stock trout do on the internet, picking on easy targets. But that's what a lot of folks are doing. What I'm not doing is calling for bloodlust. I'm not calling for bloodlust. I'm not saying that you need to incorporate X amount of dead fish into your trout season. Nor am I saying that you have to eat fish every once in a while. This is If you don't want to eat a fish, then don't eat a fish. Although, and this is what we'll talk about kind of for the rest of the, the episode... I think that you should kill and eat a fish every once in a while if you like fish. Certainly, what I'm not doing is advocating a shift in policy. On our most protected streams, our most fragile streams, I don't want to see a daily limit imposed. I think that what we have in a lot of places is right and good, and I support it, and I choose to fish there a lot of the times. But the vast majority of anglers are still going to abide by their local regulations as they take home a crappie or a redfish or all other sorts of species. So what am I doing? What are we going to talk about in the remaining 15 minutes or whatever? I guess I'm simply raising awareness. It's, again, a springboard, something for you to think about if you haven't thought about it or just giving you a different perspective. There are some things that are kind of their foundational presuppositions or where we start. So here's two starting points for this conversation for, for fly fishers and killing fish. First, most people in the world think that fishing results in harvesting. Most people in the world think that fishing results in harvesting. And are they right or are they wrong? Or are there a lot of other questions that you have to ask to determine if they're right or they're wrong? I think that's probably the case. Most people, not just in the world, but also in the United States, think this way. And I'm not one to so quickly toss around the concept of privilege, but purely catch-and-release recreational fishing is a framework that not everyone really has the opportunity to go for or really have the, the time to enjoy. So that's that's the first thing. Secondly, um, across a wide spectrum of concerns, non-catch-and-release anglers are the allies of fly fishers. So uh, in a lot of situations, folks who keep fish are our allies. They want to catch four big, healthy fish today, next month, next year, and they get it. It is, it is a fallacy, and it is incredibly, um, uh, I would say, discriminatory to say that people who want to eat fish are dumb, and so they don't realize that if they catch and eat a fish today, there's not going to be a fish there tomorrow. They get that. And so harvest practices are part of the fisheries and a part of the cultures of people who want to catch fish today and tomorrow and next year. So we have to understand that they, although they are going about it in a somewhat different way, also often have that long-term picture in mind. So I'm not saying to stop throwing fish back. We should keep being different, and we should definitely keep advocating for our fish, our waters, and our environmental concerns. But we also need to keep in mind that we're part of a culture that is bigger than us. Fly fishing is a part of fishing, which is a part of the outdoors, and it's just a big, big world. There's a lot that we have to offer, but there's also a lot that we could learn. All right, well, what do I do? Okay, let me, let me just give you my perspective. 
Here's what I do. 100% of the time, when I'm fishing special regulations water, whether that's catch and release or whether that is a very, very low limit, like there's some streams, this and this kind of I don't get, and this is where I was saying before, like, you know, I think most people are on the same page, but I, I don't get some of these really um, pre- premier waters where they allow you to keep one fish and it's over like 24 inches i don't get that and if someone wants to explain that to me feel free to i haven't taken the time to google it but i just don't get some of these spring creeks some of these other rivers where they say yeah you can catch one really big fish and keep it i just don't get that but i don't do it so 100 percent of the time regulations where catch and release or delayed harvest even anything like that i will throw the fish back 100 percent of the time on fragile ecosystems even if i can keep fish so I don't keep striped bass. I just don't think that it's a great idea where I live in in Massachusetts to keep the stripers, even if they're in that slot limit size. Uh, I don't keep brook trout on some of these streams that are around me that have them, where, you know, I bet these native brookies that are 8 to 10 inches would be absolutely delicious, but I also think they have a lot more value in the stream. And personally, and this is kind of where it comes down to conviction, might that fish get eaten by a fisher cat or a you know possum or something like that right after I release it when it's it's chilling out, kind of getting its strength back? Maybe, but I can control releasing it. I can't control what happens after it, so I'm I'm not going to keep it. I'm also 100% of the time not going to keep fish in waters that have potential significant impact from pollution. So a lot of places where I fish in New England in the Mid-Atlantic, they're post-industrial. Uh, so there was um, factories and things like that that were operating up until even maybe 25, 30 years ago where their practices of discharge were not great. So the last thing I want to do is eat a trout that's been swimming in water that's still contaminated. It takes a much longer time than we think for these ecosystems to flush out a lot of these these uh, uh, chemicals and, and other contaminants. Similarly, a lot of places I fish are, you could qualify them as urban. And so I'm just not going to keep fish in those situations. So if there's significant regulations, if, if the ecosystem is fragile, or if there's pollution present, 100% of the time, I am going to throw those fish back. And then in the other situations, I would say at least at least 90% of the time, I'm going to throw the fish back. So when do I keep fish? Mostly, when I keep fish, I'm keeping panfish through the ice. That is one of my absolute favorite freshwater fish to catch, kill, and eat is panfish, so sunfish and bluegill and, and crappie and things like that, even a, a random bass, through the ice. I'll eat them in the in the summertime too, but something about pulling them up through the ice and uh, whatever their diet is, whatever's going on in their metabolism, uh, that time of year, I just think they taste so much better. And uh, I, you know, only keep the ones that are wrist to fingertip, uh, nice little fillets on either side of them. Uh, I'll keep those and uh, I'll freeze them up and uh, eat them throughout the the winter and early spring. Absolutely love them. Another fish that I'll catch and and uh, keep as long as it meets all those other qualifications I mentioned before is catfish. I love fried catfish. And uh, so those are, that's the majority of the fish that I catch and eat. Now, the, the, the fraction of the percentage that I've talked about of times when I'll catch and keep fish, there is a fraction where it will be trout. In situations and ecosystems under regulation, regulations where that is an option and where I feel okay about doing it. 
and there's some times where some of these like remote uh, trout ponds up in up in uh, New England, that 10 inch brook trout taking a couple more of those out of there when there's not any natural predators in the water. I mean, there's no big toothy fish or anything like that. Maybe the a heron will get them. Maybe uh, a, an otter or something will be in there, but you, you kind of got to thin those populations out to, to help the ecosystem that's been otherwise hindered by human impact. So I'll keep a couple of those fish, especially if I injure one, if I deep hook one or, uh, you know, it gets, it gets hung up as I'm, I'm bringing it back in. And by the time I get it back, I can tell it's a little bit woozy. As long as it's of keeping size, that's a fish that I think, you know what, there's a very good chance because I've hooked it deep or because it just getting it into the, into the boat or getting the hook out didn't go the way it should. It's much better if I bonk this thing on the head and keep these little fillets rather than throw it back in there and allow it to die because I can, and I, I like the taste of fish. I like trout. Uh, so I'll keep them in those situations. So I think, and I think that kind of leads to the next point, which is that catch and release isn't always the answer. Catch and release is not always the answer. If I'm out west and I have the ability to keep some brook trout when I'm catching them up in the Rockies, absolutely. Why not? What's what am I hindering? What am I hurting? Uh, if anything, I'm, I'm helping out that ecosystem. Uh, and there's situations where they say if you don't want to keep it, just throw it on the bank. Well, I get that, and I've done that before with with other fish and other situations, which I'm not going to go into today. But catch and release is not the option in that uh, situation as far as I'm concerned. Um, now, does that mean that if you are so um, foundationally, morally opposed to killing a trout that you have to kill a trout? Well, no. But that being said, there's situations where the, the moral obligation, I think, is to kill a fish. Now, here, and this is this is not something that I struggle with, but a great example is some of these uh, river systems up in Maine where smallmouth have made their way into these brook trout habitats, and the smallmouth are voracious feeders on those juvenile brook trout, and they have the potential to decimate the populations very, very quickly. And there they say, you actually have to kill that fish. And that's where I would say, if you can't bring yourself to kill a smallmouth up in one of these rivers in Maine, then you probably shouldn't be fishing on these rivers because you'd be putting yourself in a situation where you would have to go against the regulations to throw that fish back. I actually had it one time where I caught a really big smallmouth, and I was kind of pumped. I was thinking, man, this is great. This is my last day here. I can throw this thing in the cooler because the cooler is empty, and I can take it home, and it's going to be this you know, delicious fish. And the thing got off, and it was immediately this, like, oh, man, like I, I'm not going to be able to eat the smallmouth. But then I realized, stink. Did somebody see me like play this thing very poorly when it's like swimming around my feet? And so this big like 18-inch smallie is now swimming away. But that's an example where catch and release isn't always the answer. But it goes beyond that. It goes beyond just the logistics. And this is kind of what I, I, I'm going to close with. I know there's so much that we could talk about this. And I've, I've read some really good articles and some, some books on this. But the last thing is just the kind of the cultural aspect of it. Killing and eating a fish... When you're okay with it, when it fits in the regulations, it connects you. What does it connect you with? It connects you with other anglers. As I said before, most people who are involved in recreational fishing in the United States want to catch and keep and eat some of the fish that they that they come in contact with. And so it, it kind of makes you realize that, you know, this is something that you can do and, and you can bring something home. You can bring the memories home. You can bring the, the enjoyment of the, the recreation home, but you can also bring home something that you can eat and you can share with your family if they're, you know, amenable to eating 
fish. So, but this connects you with, with a lot of people and what they do, and it kind of gives you a different perspective of, of, of what's out there. Secondly, there's connection with history. You don't have to rewind 50 years to find a lot of famous fly fishers were catching, keeping, and eating the trout that they caught, along with many other species. So it gives you this connection with history. There's so many stories I read, and they talk about frying up uh, you know, a couple of, of trout that they caught that afternoon for supper um, before they go out to fish the evening hatch. And it just makes my mouth water because, you know, what did you have to bring into the, the, the woods? A little thing of oil, maybe a pat of butter, and you get this awesome experience with these delicious fish. Um, and, I mean, they're delicious fish. They're also fun fish, but that's what leads me to the last point. It connects you with fish and nature in a way that, I think it goes beyond really if you are purely, only, exclusively a catch and release angler. If you can appreciate that this fish is for you in some way, I think it adds to the experience. And again, I've shared my kind of worldview and my uh, paradigm for my interaction with the outdoors. It's not of uh, it's not one that discounts or rejects the possibility of me taking advantage of what's there. I am to steward it. I am to respect it. I am to take care of it. And that's what stewardship is. It's respectfully taking care of something. But I also, I think it's for me. And when when I say that, I don't want you to, to, to hear some sort of prideful, pompous thing. But I think that as people, we, we do have a, a right and a responsibility over the natural world. And it's for us to take care of, but it's also for us to enjoy. And fish are part of that. But it's just a cool thing. Again, uh, my, my first fish was on a, a float on a canoe trip. And I ate this fish, and I was probably 9 or 10 years old. And I wasn't particularly into eating fish, but having this little probably bass or crappy filet on this little Illinois River... It was a really cool moment that I can remember because I caught it. Somebody else killed it and and uh, and uh, you know skinned it and and fried it. But it was this connection with me on the river, and that has been an important point for me. Looking back in now probably thirty plus years uh, uh, since that moment of of being involved with nature at a level where I was actually getting something from it in more than one way. So, what are your thoughts? completely disagree don't think that i went far enough let me know matthew at castingacross.com and again i don't think that you should have my same breakdown of when to keep and when to release fish i have no problem with somebody who says you know what i'm just going to always throw them back uh, again I, I did go through a couple of caveats where i think that would be a problem but uh, you know generally speaking somebody who wants to throw back all their fish somebody who wants to always have a fish in their freezer and there's anything wrong with that either so what's your take on it do let me know. I am interested to hear from you. This week on Casting Across, the first article is called The Fly Fishing Show 2021 in Your Home. So just in the last week and a half, the Fly Fishing Show has announced a slate of online classes. A slate of online classes. And they feature names such as Tim Camisa, who I'll talk about here in a second with Trout and Feather, uh, Gary Borger, um, Landon Meyer, lots of great authors and speakers and presenters and fly fishers. And what do you get from that? 
you get if you sign up uh, between two and two and a half hours of individualized, well, a small group of like 20 people uh, instruction where you have Q&A and things like that. This is one of those things that is going on every year at the Fly Fishing Show that not enough people take advantage of, in my opinion. Um, it's just a, a unique experience, and it goes way beyond what you're going to get from reading a book or watching a YouTube video. Those things are great. I'm not going to discourage them or listening to a podcast for that matter. Those are all great, but this is going from uh, you know just reading the manual to sitting in on a class, and that's a, that's a great experience. So check that out. Uh, there's a link to the registration page on the article, uh, Fly Fishing Show 2021, in your home. Wednesday's article is Trout and Feather March, my monthly contribution to Tim Camisa's Trout and Feather website. And as, as I've said before, Tim has some fantastic videos that primarily focus on fly tying on his website. And this month he has a great video on choosing a fly tying vice. This is like right up my alley where he uh, goes over the pros and cons of different styles. I loved it. I've watched it uh, once, like really quick, um, double speed, just to kind of get through it, just to see exactly what he's talking about. And then I watched it again kind of uh, in pieces to just digest what his uh, input was. Because honestly, I'm looking for a new fly tying vice. And so this is like super pertinent for me. But I wrote about uh, streamers. I podcasted about streamers last week. So this is kind of a, a short form version of that in, in uh, the Trout and Feather website. This week's recommendation actually ties back in to the uh, podcast content. And that is to watch Meat Eater. If you have Netflix, I think there's three uh, seasons that are available on Netflix of Meat Eater. It's incredibly popular, so talking to a primarily outdoors folk uh, audience, I might be preaching to the choir, but it is a really high-quality hunting and fishing show. Primarily hunting, but there's enough fishing content in there that if you are totally bored by uh, hunting, you can skip around the episodes. And Stephen Ranella, the host and the man behind this, talks about hunting, fishing, killing, and consuming in, a, in that ethos that I think I was trying to capture. And he does it really well, but he's got a really fancy production crew and he can kind of, you know, chop up and edit things the way he wants to do it and make it sound much better than I probably can in 25 minutes. But if you haven't watched it, uh, watch it. I watched them from beginning to end, starting at the beginning of the season, working through them, and I learn a lot about doves and ducks and bears and boars and all that sort of stuff. But if you just are interested in the fishing, you can hop around and find those. And uh, he's got some really cool approaches. He does use conventional gear. So again, if that uh, is verboten to you, then you know maybe broaden your perspectives a little bit. But there's some cool ones in this most recent season of him fishing down incredibly deep using a motorized reel. And I absolutely loved it. I wish there was more of it. It's about the furthest thing from fly fishing that you can imagine, but just really cool to see it. And then again, what does he do? He eats the thing. But I wish I was eating it right there with him. Thank you for listening to the Casting Across Fly Fishing Podcast. Please subscribe in your favorite podcast app and rate the podcast on iTunes. Then head over to castingacross.com where you'll find more info on this podcast and three posts a week on the people, places, and things that go into the pursuit of fish. <laughs> <laughs>